Aria, this is an historic weekend. Uh, about 23 months ago, uh, this little thing happened across North America, and we began putting our services online, which meant on Friday morning, whoever was preaching went into a studio in front of a camera all alone. They talked to that camera, and it went out to all of you. This is the first weekend we are back to taping weekend services. So welcome, everybody. Awesome. I want to say a big welcome uh, to those of you uh, watching at home who are joining us uh, in our services here. I want to say hi to my mom down in Oregon, who I know is watching every weekend. Hi, mom. <laughs> Central Abbey's joining us, Real Life Community Church, and Central Abbey, or East Abbey as well. So welcome to all of them. And uh, now I'm going to make an awkward pause because we're not going to include that on the World Wide Web forever and ever. So we're going to make it this really awkward pause right now. And then we're going to start our message. Is that okay? <laughs> Laugh with me. Tell me it's okay. That's great. Thank you. Okay. Awkward pause. Hey, welcome here. <laughs> Grab your Bibles. We are studying in the book of Philippians, and you're going to need them open uh, to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to pick up with that thought. So uh, back in 2016, uh, some of you may have seen the movie Hidden Figures. Uh, Hidden Figures was a true story. It traced the life of three black American women who had served in Nassau during the space war of the 1950s. Uh, all three of them were mathematicians. They worked behind the scenes alongside the engineers. And uh, what we're told in the story and the book upon which it was based, their real life story, that those launches into space would not have happened without these behind the scene heroes. And so we got to glimpse into the life of three of them. Uh, that particular movie was a box office smash. It grossed over $230 million. It was one of the best-selling movies of that year. Uh, it, run, it was nominated for many, many awards. Uh, but what, what was the essence of that story, though, that captured people's hearts and attention was this. That the underdog, the forgotten ones, the behind-the-scenes heroes finally got their day in the spotlight, and so thus the title, Hidden Figures. So the text we're reading this weekend talks about two people behind the scenes. Uh, and if you wanted to put a different paragraph heading in your Bible, some of your Bibles have paragraph headings over them. Mine simply says, Timothy and Epaphrodites. You could actually title it, Hidden Figures. So we're going to read these verses together. Philippians 2, 19 to 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus and Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also." I also thought it necessary to send you Epaphrodites, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service 
to me. So if you've been around Northview any length of time, you will know that our weekend habit is simply to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, We call it expository, and if it's not uh, truly expository preaching, it is at least expository study. And by that I mean it's word by word, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, book by book, working our way through the Bible. And and there's a lot of strength to expository preaching in that it keeps the preacher from having his favorite hobby horse. Uh, You've probably never heard this story because preachers have their own set of stories of the homiletics prof who had a student who every message somehow circled back to baptism. Didn't matter what text he was given, he always wanted to talk about baptism. So finally the prof decided he was going to seal his uh, fate by giving him a text that had nothing to do with baptism, and he assigned him Genesis 3 verse 9, God walking in the garden and saying, Adam, where art thou? So the student got up to preach and he said, I have three points. Where was Adam? Why was God looking for him? And a few thoughts on baptism. Preaching through books of the Bible help us to avoid those sort of hobby horses uh, on one hand. And on the other hand, it also doesn't let us off the hook on those too hot to handle type topics that we might not get to unless we were preaching through the books of Scripture. So you can't preach through Romans and avoid the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. You just can't. You can't preach through Corinthians and not deal with lawsuits between believers in the church or sexual immorality in the church. You can't preach through Thessalonians and not talk about the second coming of Christ. You just can't do it because it's right there in the text. On the other hand, there's some texts of scripture that we look at and we're like, I don't know, doesn't seem relevant. There's nothing there. I read it and I think, so what? Just skip on past it. Expository preaching doesn't allow us to skip those texts. And why I'm saying that is because our text this weekend might be one of those that you're like, hmm, interesting, but so what? And just speed right on past it. But I want to suggest to you that there are some very important principles that undergird this particular passage. And the key question is this, how do we view greatness? How do we view greatness? And I want to ask you this question, can we joyfully flourish in life even if we are never widely known outside a very small circle? Where do we anchor our identity in a world that is obsessed with image and reputation, in a world that measures itself by the number of likes on Facebook or views on YouTube, and even in a church world where everybody wants to be Billy Graham, but no one wants to be Mother Teresa? The thought that this passage forces us to ponder is this. This is our thought. Your life matters less and more than you think. What matters most is to whom you matter. Let me say it again. Your life matters less and more than you think. What matters most is to whom you matter. And so I wanna give you three takeaways this weekend. Don't overestimate yourself, don't underestimate yourself, and get to know the estimator. That's what we're gonna talk about. So Leonard Bernstein might be a name familiar to some of you older folks like me. He was a big deal back in the day. He was the conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, and he wrote a ton of music. Uh, His most famous musical score was the score for West Side Story, uh, which ran over 700 shows 
right from the get-go and continues to run now around the world and was just last year remade again a second time into a full-length movie by Steven Spielberg. But he was once asked the question, what is the most difficult instrument to play in an orchestra? And he answered right away, second violin. Second violin. To take the second chair and to be willing to play the harmony line, not the melody line to take the support role, not the lead role, is countercultural in the world that we live in. Because greatness in our culture means I need to be the headliner. I want to have the corner office, not work down in the mailroom. I want to be the quarterback, not the water boy. And there's no debate that the Apostle Paul was for sure the biggest name in the New Testament next to Jesus Christ himself. He was a missionary, he was an evangelist, he was a pastor teacher, he was a church planter, he was a theologian, he was a scholar. Uh, There are 27 books in the New Testament. He wrote 13 of them for sure, and if you think he wrote the book of Hebrews, then he wrote 14, more than half. Two-thirds of the book of Acts is about his life. He was responsible, not single-handedly, but he was responsible for taking the gospel from Jerusalem north to Antioch, on into Asia Minor, across the Aegean Sea, into Greece, into Europe. And if history is true, if tradition is true, those of you who have traveled in Spain will know that you see multiple statues to the Apostle Paul in the nation of Spain, because tradition tells us he did indeed make it to Spain as he wrote to the Roman church, I long to see you on my way to Spain. There were many around him, however. We know that uh, Paul didn't do this alone. He had a lot of traveling partners, and so we know a lot of them by name. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Silas. Dr. Luke, John Mark, Titus, and a lot of others. But there are many, many more who were unnamed and unknown laborers alongside of him. Uh, So one of the interesting texts in the book of Acts is that Paul, when he establishes churches, before he leaves town, it says he appoints elders, leaders in every local church. Uh, The funny thing is, we don't know any of their names. So these important leaders in the local church that Paul has left in charge, and they are not named in most cases. Uh, This particular letter... Uh, The letter to the Philippians, which we opened it, it says to the saints, all the saints, to the overseers and the deacons, or in our language, we would say to all of the members, to the leadership team and all of the service teams. And yet we don't know their names. Uh, We think of Philippi and we we talked about it in Acts chapter 16, the very first week in introducing it, Uh, three individuals who are part of the core team. And there was one who was given a name, Lydia, the businesswoman. So we know the seller of purple by her name, Lydia. And then there's the jailer. And I just called him Joe Jailer because he wasn't given a name. And there's the slave girl who's freed from demon possession. And she is not named. And so of all these peoples, the overseers, all the saints, the members, all the serve teams, we only know five names in this entire church. Uh, We meet three more in chapter four, Euodia and Syntyche and Clement. And then Epaphroditus in this text. So many unsung heroes. Most of the movers and shakers in the New Testament are hidden figures. And our text highlights two of them, Titus and Epaphrodites. So the question before we jump into application is what do we know about them? Well, just really briefly, we met Timothy back in Acts 16. So Paul is preaching in Asia Minor and he comes into Lystra. That's Timothy's hometown. He is preaching there second time. It's his second missionary journey. And it says this, there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. 
Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium, so Paul wanted him to join them on their journey, and that's what happens. So he likely met him on the first missionary journey. He may have been converted on Paul's first missionary journey. Now Paul is back in town. He stumbles onto this young man again, and he's like, I want you to come join our traveling evangelistic team, and Timothy does. And so as you follow through the book of Acts, you see Timothy identified as Paul's son in the faith. And eventually he is called a partner in the gospel. Paul is the older mentor and Timothy is his younger protege. He travels with him. And if you're reading the New Testament closely, you will see that Timothy actually co-authors five books of the New Testament. In fact, the very one that we're reading. You might not have noticed that, but Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy to the church at Philippi. So Timothy is one of the authors of the the book that we are reading. He's like-minded. Paul gives him high praise. I've got nobody like him. Uh, And it didn't mean I have nobody else because when you get to the end of the book, uh, chapter four, verse 21, Paul says, the brothers who are with me here greet you. So we know he wasn't alone with just him and Timothy. I've got no one else here. But he's like, I've got no one else like him. We are like-minded. Uh, We share the same goals, the same commitment, the same interests. The the Greek word literally is we are of the same soul. Or if Anna Green Gables was talking to us, she'd say he's a kindred spirit. In our modern language, we'd say we just click. It works. We get it. Probably many of you have seen the three C's when it comes to hiring or building a team, that these three C words are very, very important when you're trying to add somebody to your team, Uh, that the number one question has to be character. Is this man or this woman a person of integrity and honesty and of strong character? Do you trust them? Uh, If they're coming into the business, they might be handling money, you might be giving them responsibilities. Uh, You need to know that you can trust the character of this person, number one. And if they don't have that, you don't even go any further in the interview. Secondly, however, you want to know that they've got the competencies. Can they do the job? Have they taken the the training, the skills, and the abilities, the talents to do the job that they have been given to do? That's, That's also very important. And then if they have those two things, the third is also this question, what about the chemistry? Do they fit our team? Do they mesh with the rest of us personality-wise and all those things? Because this is very, very important as well, right? Have you ever been part of a team who were people of character and they had the right competencies and they just didn't gel? They just didn't fit? It just didn't click? And Paul's like, I got nobody like Timothy. Uh, He's of the same soul with me. The second man, Epaphrodites. We know less about Epaphrodites than Timothy. Uh, In fact, he is only named in the book of Philippians. Uh, And yet, uh, we get some hints around him. In verse 25, he is called Paul's brother, the fellow worker, and a soldier. Uh, So in other words, Paul is saying he's become like family to me. He's like a brother. And he's a worker in the church. He's a servant. And he's also a a spiritual warrior in the faith. He's a, a good soldier. And he's not talking about taking up arms and joining the army. He's talking about I'm in the Lord's army, the spiritual battle zone, that he stands with me shoulder to shoulder. And then also he says, and also he's your messenger and your minister. Uh, He had been the one who carried the cash from Philippi down to Rome. Uh, You're like, what's that about? Well, the whole letter is a thank you letter. Uh, Paul's in prison, remember? 
Acts 28, he's imprisoned in Rome and he's writing this letter to Philippi. He's under house arrest. He has some freedom, but he has to pay his own expenses. And you're like, well, how do you pay your expenses when you're under house arrest? You can't be going to work. You're, you're locked into the house. So he had to depend either on his, the deep pockets of his own savings account or upon the donations from friends and family and others. And the Philippian church took a love offering for Paul and they sent it to him. But they couldn't e-transfer in those days. So they took the offering, they bound up the, the cash in a bag or something, and they gave it to a brother that they trusted, that he wouldn't abscond with the money and end up living in the Canary Islands, and that he was brave enough to carry the cash some several hundred miles, either by sea or overland, and all the dangers that there would have been in those early days, carrying a cash offering and risking his life. And somewhere in the midst of that, either on the road down or when he gets to Rome, he picks up some bug. We don't know what. But he gets so sick that he almost dies. And, and, and now he's upset that the, the people in Philippi had heard that he got sick. He, he's not so upset that he's sick. He's more upset that they heard that he was sick and he doesn't want to cause them any trouble. He's a, he's a unique character. And Paul says, honor men like the, these. They are the hidden figures. Okay, that's the end of our text. And you're like, so what? Interesting. But so what? And I want to suggest that our text raises some very important questions. And I want to ask you this question. Can you imagine living a fulfilled and flourishing life even if you are only a footnote in history? Can you imagine living a fulfilled and flourishing life, even though you're only a footnote in history? You see, it's a critical conversation for our joy and for our contentment and for our flourishing in the very short span of our lives. Because how often have you heard statements like these? I've heard many of them. You are destined for greatness. God has something big in your future. You're going to be a world changer. Have you ever heard people say those things? And they might be very well-meaning people who tap you on the shoulder and say those kind of things. But I think a better question might be, can you imagine living a fulfilled and flourishing life even if you are only a footnote in history? Do we believe Jesus' words? Jesus said this in Mark 10, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the son of man, Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do we believe Peter's words? Peter, who said, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. Do we believe Paul's words? Just a few verses earlier, chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Why is it critical? 
It's critical because we live in an age that is incessantly telling us the opposite. To be unknown is the greatest tragedy we could face, according to our culture. Back in 2010, there was two PhD psychologists that fired a warning shot across the bow of the North American ship talking about an epidemic, an epidemic that was sweeping North America 10 years before COVID. It's the narcissism epidemic. They said it stands on four legs of this stool. One is developmental, it's parents' fault and teachers' fault. Secondly, it's the media culture's fault. The third is it's the internet's fault. And the fourth is it's easy credit's fault. Now let me unpack a long statement. You can read along with me. Each of these legs, not read it out loud with me, but you can follow along with me. Each of these legs supports living in a narcissistic fantasy instead of reality. Few boundaries are set by families and teachers tell children that they're stars and winners even as performance stays stagnant. Celebrity culture and the media tempt people with the idea of fame, often fame awarded for the amount of attention drawn to themselves rather than to actual accomplishments. The internet allows people to, be, to present an inflated and self-focused view of themselves to the world and encourages them to spend hours each day contemplating their images. Easy credit serves as a personal fairy godmother who makes wishes come true, but only until the bills come due. And when that happens, like when we enter a recession, it's so long, coach, hello, pumpkin. Now, I don't know the faith of these two authors. Uh, I Googled it once and looked it up. There might be some exposure to faith there. I don't think they identify as Christians. But they have a chapter entitled, God Doesn't Want You to Be Average. And they critique the North American church. And that chapter is actually not a very pretty picture of the church from an outsider's look. And so what might we take from this text about these two men that were serving behind the scenes? And so the first thing I want to say to you is this. Don't overestimate yourself. Embrace your obscurity. Aren't those encouraging words? Stay with me. The first point might be painful. And I might tick some of you off. And that's okay. Because like a surgeon who has to cut into a body to remove some cancer, what I really want to do is free you up that you would enjoy your life to the very fullest by releasing some of the pressure that you might feel to make a name for yourself. You see, the truth is, there might be, might be, a handful of people in our entire church family who will become famous around the world, maybe. But for the vast majority of us, we will live quiet lives, largely unknown and quickly forgotten. And that might sound depressing, but I would tell you the opposite. It's incredibly liberating as well. Let me just point out the obvious, if you're not thinking this way already. There are 7.9 billion people on the planet. 7.9 billion. The likelihood of your name being known is pretty small. You're actually a very small fish in an incredibly massive ocean. The world is vast and we are small. And I could illustrate it in a hundred ways, but let me just do a couple 
two or three trivias for you. There are 200 and some odd nation states, monarchies, etc. So of those 200, how many presidents, prime ministers, dictators, and monarchs could you name? Or let's bring it closer to home. These are the most powerful people on earth, remember. We should know their names. Closer to home, uh, Canada has had 23 prime ministers. Can you name them? The U.S. has had 46 presidents, the most powerful office on the planet, we're told. Can you name those most powerful leaders? Hidden Figures told the story of three women, and it was an incredible movie. But they only chose three, and at that point in time, NASA had thousands of employees. Thousands, and they chose just three to focus on. You see, our culture loves to puff up the individual. I am a legend in my own mind. I'm a very big deal. I am an important person. Actually, nobody knows you exist. And we'll be quickly forgotten. Do you want to know how quickly we'll be forgotten? Do this survey among a group of friends. Take out a piece of paper and write 16 blocks onto that paper. And ask them to name all of their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents' first and last name. Surveys have said most people know their parents' name. Many others know their grandparents' name, but then very, very few actually know their great-grandparents' first and last name. I don't. I don't, actually. And if you go one generation further to the 32 great-great-grands, most can't fill in any of them other than the paternal last name that you know, okay, I'm a birch, so up the birch tree, there had to be a great-great-granddaddy birch somewhere. And if that's true that we can't remember our great-grands, then our great-grandkids won't know our names either. How quickly we are forgotten. You see, a passage that I have never, ever seen on a motivational poster, and I don't think I will, is this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. When are they going to put that on a motivational poster? You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Make it your ambition woo, to live a quiet life. I think if Paul could be here to talk to us face to face, he might simply say, embrace your obscurity, stay humble, free yourself from the burden of grandeur. You're a small fish in a big pond, so swim and enjoy it. But before you're totally depressed and angry with me, let me give you the second takeaway. The second is this, don't underestimate yourself. Embrace your influence. You see, while these men may seem to get only a footnote, you need to take notice also of the high praise that they were given. Timothy was a dearly loved son, and not just dearly loved to Paul, but he was dearly loved to the Philippian church. When he got back to Philippi, Paul knew they would be filled with joy. There would be a party. They would have a homecoming for Timothy. Woo, the pastor's back. Timothy loved them as well. To Timothy, you're not just one number in the flock. He was a true pastor shepherd. He loved them. He cared for them. Their lives mattered to him. Epaphrodites, not just a name, but he's a brother. 
He's closer maybe than your own blood relations. Those of you who have all of your extended family around you may not know this, but for those of you in this room who don't have extended family in this valley will know that sometimes your friends, your Christian brothers and sisters are literally closer than your blood family. And Paul is saying, he is a brother to me. He's a fellow laborer and a soldier. He's a faithful servant. He's your messenger, and he's a minister to my need. These are good men. So in this sense, these men were big fish in a small pond. They might not have been known to the world, but they were known by few, and it mattered. And so, too, with every one of our lives is that we may never be known outside the small circle of family and friends, but in that circle, we can have a massive impact for the glory of God. You see, it's easy to say, well, among 7.9 billion people, one life doesn't matter at all. I might as well just pack it in. No one would know whether I lived or died, but those closest to you would know the void that you left. I think of a totally different illustration, the billions, billions of honeybees in the world. Do they matter? All they do is buzz around. The queen might be important because she's producing all these offspring, but seriously, all those drones, all those worker bees, what do they do? And yet you know full well, just like I know, that if the bee was not doing its job, our food supply would be decimated. If those little bees were not buzzing around, transferring pollen from plant to plant to plant, we would have no harvest. And in the same way, each one of our lives has incredible impact on those closest to us. Obviously, our families, mothers and fathers who faithfully care for and love for their children. And then as we grow older, our friend group, our peers, The men and women in our lives who deeply pour into us, friends who might be closer than blood family who pour into us, obviously teachers and coaches who just keep showing up and calling out the best in in their protégés. Endless list. You could illustrate it in every single area of life. Doctors and nurses who faithfully keep us healthy. Accountants who keep us legal. Baristas who keep us caffeinated. You see, God tells us through this book that every life is of incredible value. Every life. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That as we pour our lives into the lives of others, into our closest relationships, we bring glory to God and we call out the very best in them. You know, it's interesting to me over the years in church planner assessments, one of the most common heroes when planters were asked, who are your heroes? One of the most common ones was grandma's. Grandma came up again and again and again and again in so many hero lists. And Timothy's life, if you know his story, when the letter is written to 1 Timothy, it acknowledges your mother Lois and your grandmother Eunice, or maybe the other way around, but Lois and Eunice, mother and grandmother. And Timothy's faithful service mattered greatly to Paul and to this church, and Epaphrodite's brother, his worker B status, and his union in the, in the battle mattered. So while we should never over-inflate the importance of our life, we should also never underestimate the impact of a single life well-invested, to love deeply, to serve joyfully, and to fight courageously. But the third challenge, I think, that is implied in this text is this. You better get to know the estimator. Live your life for an audience of one. 
So by now, uh, you've forgotten the convoluted big idea that I gave you at the start. So let me throw it back up on the screen again. That your life matters less and more than you think. What matters most is to whom you matter. You see, the most important decision that any of us will ever make is this simple question. This is the most important decision that any of us will ever make. This simple question, for whom are you going to live your life? For whom? For whom are you living? Either yourself or somebody else, but for whom? And we can live for the approval and the applause of humanity around us, always seeking the next like on our social media feed, desperate and dependent upon the approval ratings of our peers, always looking for someone else to prop up our fragile ego and self-esteem, needing to be loved, needing to be popular, needing to be needed. Or we can live for the one who truly matters. Uh, Oz Guinness, in his book, uh, The Call talks about the audience of one, and he says this, Christ-centered heroism does not need to be noticed or publicized. The greatest deeds are done before the audience of one, and that's enough. Those who are seen and sung by the audience of one can afford to be careless about lesser audiences. You see, if you've got God's approval, you don't need anybody else's. And ultimately, Christian friends, and that's who I'm talking to, there is just one person's approval and acceptance that we need to strive for, and that is the approval of our maker, our creator, the God who loved us, the God who sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins. And and here's the good news. You don't have to earn his approval. In fact, you never could. You can't pray enough, serve enough, give enough to get his approval. We are given his approval as a free gift of God's grace. Is that not amazing? Uh, Guinness goes on to say this, our ultimate verdict that we are important and loved has already been declared in Jesus. The verdict is in, according to Christ, you are loved. And the verdict then leads to our performance, not the other way around, the performance looking for a verdict. I have been declared loved and accepted. Or as Paul says in Galatians 1, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Because if I'm still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So in our day of wokeism and virtue signaling and looking over our digital shoulder constantly, in our day of climbing up the corporate ladder and pursuing ever bigger ambitions, we need to be reminded that there's only one estimator. There's only one appraiser that matters. And our lives are laid bare, lived under the glory of God or lived under our own empty kingdoms. And so the only way to live with freedom, the only way to live with freedom is to live for an audience of one. And why is this message important? Because I think that too many Christians, not just the world out there, I think too many Christians live lives of quiet desperation. In large part because of the incessant pressures of our day that say you have to make a name for yourself. And in a world that says, go big or go home, the gospel says, you matter to God because you matter to God, period. He has set his affection on you, not because you merit it or you've earned it. You're an object of his great mercy and grace in Christ, and your life might be hidden, but if it is hidden in Christ, that's all you need. 
And so my prayer for you this week, as I've been writing this message, is simply this, that you, by God's grace, would be able to embrace your obscurity and to live humbly and joyfully in the presence of God. And that you would invest deeply in where it matters most. That you would pour your life out, the unestimatable value of your life in those closest to you. And that you would serve an audience of one. Knowing that there is only one voice that matters. Your Savior's. When you stand together with me, I want to pray for you. So Lord Jesus, uh, I thank you for what a timely message in the day and age that we live in. When the world is constantly poking at us that we got to do something big. We got to be great. We got to accomplish something, make a name for ourselves, become famous, become rich, become whatever. Lord God, thank you for the reminder that there's only one whose approval we need and it's already been given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. That Father, you look at us with eyes of mercy and grace and affection and in essence, you've said, I've set my affections on you. I've done everything needed to make you a significant person and it has nothing to do with what you accomplish in this earthly lifetime. Your life is significant because I have set my affections on you through Jesus Christ. And so Lord, I pray that for every man and woman and boy and girl in this room that they would understand this. That they would understand your great love for them. That as their creator, you have made a right way for them to be right with you. That through simply receiving what Jesus did on our behalf, we can be right with our God. And that our significance can be anchored there. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know that, would you open the eyes of their heart to understand it? And then, Lord, for all of us, the majority in this room who would claim the name of Jesus, would you allow us to live in the freedom of knowing, yep, our name may never be known around the world, but we are very important in a small circle where we have influence. And so we're going to pour our lives out courageously and joyfully for the people that we have influence on. And we will do it all ultimately unto the glory of Christ and Christ alone. For his glory and for our incredible joy. Thank you, Lord. Amen.